0: Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers. Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. And my name is Michael Kilpatrick. And today, my guest is Jeremy Kuffman, who is the Chief of operations at Propagate, a leader in agroforestry. Along with his team, Jeremy is fully committed to integrating agroforestry into farming to increase farm profits, decrease erosion and nutrient loss, and promote the broad use of sustainable farming methods. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So give us a little bit of a background with how did um, Propagate get started?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Back in 2015, um, really the early days was thinking about how to add trees on farms in a way that made it reasonable for farms to transition uh, to agroforestry. It started with really touring the country, looking at uh, a lot of the farms that really at the beachhead of regenerative agriculture uh, across the U.S. That was everything from going down to see Joel Salatin. Uh, in his place all the way across into sort of looking at chestnut production systems in Ohio at Route 9, um, all the way to sort of Wisconsin and, and Iowa and back. Um, and that journey really sort of solidified the need for someone to really coalesce around helping farms transition in a more professional manner, um, but also help farms be able to get the capital that they needed to be able to make that transition. Such a huge part of the issue Mm -hmm. with agroforestry. So that really set us off on the journey. Um, Personally, I uh, worked on organic uh, lettuce farms when I was in college um, and on a, a grass fed dairy, a small scale, Um, but I'd always, I come from a timber products, business background, family business. So trees were always in my DNA Um, and that, that path started in 2015. And now here we are um, almost 10 years later. Um, and have made some good progress.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. All right. So then uh, what were the early projects like? Like what kind of projects do you work on in the early years?
1: Yeah, that's a great <laughs> question. So it started with um, really working with farms that would that are int- were interested prerequisitely to mm-hmm. agroforestry. Um, a lot of the time these were, you know, passive Gentleman Farms or Gentlewoman Farms that were interested in. Uh, mm-hmm. They had, didn't necessarily have the on-farm income side of it that was required to make it possible, which gave them the, some, somewhat of the budget to be able to make those transitions happen. Um, the um, And really chipping away at being able to get these sort of small to mid-sized scale pilots off the ground with these projects. Um, uh-huh. One of the things that we did launch to start with was an analysis service for farms okay. to help them design the system and understand the economic potential of that system as sort of a prerequisite for them to be able to put the dollars to work in the projects. And so we've had those early projects, 2018, 2017, 2019, were really anywhere from, you know, three-acre installations to 20-acre installations on farms. Um that were focused on a lot more diversification than we do today on on the ground. Um, You know, five crops rather than necessarily two or three. Uh, Okay. uh, So um, as we've grown, we've sort of uh, needed to simplify things a bit, but um, that's where we started.
0: Gotcha, yeah, yeah. Um, Now I know that you're starting to kind of scale into larger projects, talk to us a little bit about kind of some of like the large projects you're working on now.
1: Yeah. We have a very large chestnut production center in Maysville, Kentucky, um, mm-hmm. stretches down into Flemingsburg, Kentucky, and then it actually hops over the river, um, into Ohio. Um, we've got another uh, farm, out, um, right alongside the river there. Um, about 30 minutes, um, East of Maysville. The, uh, that's about 1,850 acres uh, under management. Um, a very oh, wow. large majority of that is going into chestnut production uh, with okay. some of it going into black locust-centered timber, uh, as well as biodiversity and riparian restoration. So when you, okay. when you have a lot of projects, when you, when you get that much acreage, you have a lot of edges to your fields and a lot of things you can do to really bolster yeah. biodiversity and water quality. And so we, we, we treat it as a whole farm plan process um, uh-huh. with sort of the hero crop being chestnut on this project in particular.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's talk through a little bit about chestnuts. What, what is the attraction in the U.S.? Obviously, the American chestnut is something that is long gone, um, and is there any hope for that coming back?
1: Oh, man, there have been people trying to bring American chestnuts back for a long time. I think ever since we you know, had a little bit of a uh, fight-or-flight response to the blight in the yeah. 1800s and started cutting down trees and uh, between the, the blight and— harvesting. We really decimated our chestnuts in the forest early on. And um, ever since then, there have been people who wanted to bring it back. Um, There's been a lot of efforts in terms of crossbreeding. There's been a lot of efforts actually in terms of genetic modification that are more recent Mm -hmm. coming out of Syracuse. And, you know, we're still early days. I would say we're at least 50 years away from a viable American chestnut uh, propagation out in the the, the world. Um, And a lot of that has to do with um, whether it's the GM side, which is really the risk associated with the genetic modification, introduction, research, sort of the curve of that, uh, mm-hmm. seeing performance over 10, 15, 20, 30 years on that tree before you start introducing it more broadly. or And on the crossbreeding side, it's really higher risk because you, you plant a tree and it gets blight in year 10, 11, 12, even if it's say it's 99% American, 1% Chinese or something along those yeah. lines. Um, and so there's a lot of risk in the American chestnut movement, but we believe in it. It's just not something that we think is a viable thing today um, and probably won't be for a little while commercially uh, to be able to plant.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then this, this, um, this um, farm that you're working on, is that mostly the Chinese then?
1: Yeah, it's mostly Chinese, uh, uh, primary Chinese genetics. There's, a, there's some hybrids on the project, but mostly Chinese. Um, okay. So then talk us through like, what is the
0: typical, like, um, what's the culture for the Chinese? Like what's the spacing, like what's in between the plants, all this kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think understanding where the farm started is important as well. So the farms were all corn, soy conventional,
0: mm, uh, for okay. the most
1: part, there's a few farms in there that were historic, that were hay production systems previously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're, you're, the benefit of those farms is that that farmer, despite managing conventionally for a long time, um, was really on the cutting edge of using biologicals alongside sort of some of the more conventional management practices for weed control, pests, pest management, et cetera. Um, and so things like no-till on that, on that farm were, were implemented since the in mid-90s, um, which, which mm-hmm. it meant that the organic matter content on the project was actually fairly good as a starting template. So... In terms of going into that ground management cultivation for the chestnut, we rip the tree rows at 20 foot centers. um, Mm -hmm. And then across the entire farm, we put in a a ground cover in rows. We plant a low growing grass seed mix. And then between rows, we plant a hay mix. Primarily to get hay off of the ground in the early years of the project um, before the trees are above browse height. And we potentially can integrate some livestock at later years. Um, The... Um, that, that is all at 20 by 20 foot centers. And so for most hay equipment, that doesn't really work. Um, but on that project, we actually have swathers that can cut and rake all in one go to allow for that. Um, mm. And with good, in good conditions, you can get pretty good retention in terms of hay crops for the first really seven years before the shade canopy starts to fill in. Um, gotcha. It, okay. 20 by 20 is tight. So as it, as the system matures, year fifteen, year to year twenty, you start to thin from 108 trees per acre down to about half of that over time, just to manage light into the orchard.
0: Okay, so then how, how big do these Chinese chestnuts get?
1: They're big. So I mean, 40 feet tall, 40 feet wide, oh, wow. and they're you know 60 to 80 years old. Um, in the first you know 20 to 40 years, you know you're managing 20 by 20 feet wide, 20 foot high, 25 foot high.
0: Um, yeah. Okay. And then what's the harvest like? Is that something we come to and shake them to drop all the nuts or is it hand harvest? It's
1: ground sweeper harvesters. Okay. Um, so, sort of similar what you see in hazelnut production, you don't need to shake the tree. The trees naturally yep. fall, uh, have the nuts fall to the ground. The main bottleneck really okay. is around determinants yep. in the trees and having them drop at similar times. We account for about six to eight passes per acre uh, from a harvester perspective to be able to capture the full harvest, a uh, full yep. sort of drop window of the trees. Okay. And then
0: do you have to like, uh, eventually get rid of the grass below them so you can sweep or is that something you just try to knock get down pretty close to the ground so you can get through?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, call, get, making sure you're mowing close. We manage with grass ground cover, but it does require okay. basically a finishing mowing right before harvest to be able to do that. And it makes and it, sort of a prerequisite also is making sure the ground is fairly level when you're doing cultivation. So any, any rut will decrease yes. your harvester capacity. And so you, you really have to just be really on it in terms of mm-hmm. your management practices to ma- to make sure that that surface is level. Um, gotcha. It yeah. may require some orchard renovations on like that mm-hmm. leveling in later years, depending on rainfall and tractor compaction and things of that nature that occurs over time. Gotcha. Gotcha.
0: Okay. Um, and then the uses for, uh, chestnuts is obviously there's a use for them. Um, people eat them. Um, is there any, I'm assuming also in baking, like, uh, they're wholesaled for that as well for like cookies. And I know that sort of thing. Is there any use for like them in animal feed or are they too highly valued for that?
1: Yeah, they're definitely too highly valued for animal feed. Oh. There's there's a market around chestnuts for deer bait for hunting. There's, there's also a market around yeah. chestnuts for for animal feed for high quality finishing. But the pricing yeah. on that isn't. It's really where you want your like C grade sort of stuff you can't sell to go, and it's really, you're really just clearing the the the, 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 the yeah. you know the, the clean floor that you're trying to get at the end of the year um, to those markets. The 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 value so chestnuts yeah. in the U S particularly is a fairly nascent market um, though every chestnut grower that that we know and that has been growing them for the last thirty fifty years sells out regularly mostly at a premium to the global market. Um, gotcha. And um, domestically they they see no end in sight on the demand side. Um, the there's. The U.S. is a very small mm-hmm. producer of chestnuts, but globally chestnuts are produced very, very widely across Asia, yeah. Europe, as well as South America. But it is a fresh nut, so it's a little bit different storage-wise mm. than the hazelnut. So there is a limitation to yeah. global trade around chestnuts um, in, this, in a way that there might be sort of competitive factors with hazelnut, where you might have turkey shipping nuts into the United States. Gotcha. So as domestic consumption grows, we think that we, we import about sixty million dollars worth of chestnuts into the country today, um, which we don't really fulfill at all domestically. It's about you know twenty thousand acres of domestic production that we need to fill that, and we're only at about you know three thousand acres of commercial production in the United States um, to give you a sense of it. Um, yeah. And that's growing. There's been a, a huge amount of growth in the chestnut production side of things in the United States over the last five years in particular. So, yeah. So the way in which we think about it is we want to create a base load for chestnuts in the United States for first and foremost to to, to, to fill the gap of uh, the U.S. Yeah. as a producer. And then mm-hmm. second, on top of that, be able to create the domestic wholesale market for chestnuts into retail channels across the United States. Um, we view that as a benefit to the chestnut industry as a whole, not just to these projects as well.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, um, and what's the, how long are they planted before like your first harvest typically?
1: Yeah, um, people start seeing nuts coming in. I mean, we have we had nuts on trees that were planted last year, um, okay. not in a commercial fashion. Yeah. I mean, you're not gonna go bring the harvester out for those, but um, you start getting production early on, um, but it really starts to ramp up around year seven, year eight. That's when you start starting to get annual commercial yields coming off of the trees to justify being out there and harvesting with your equipment and moving things forward. And then it really starts to peak, um, around year, uh, 12, year 13, where you start getting stable sort of peak yields that you want to manage Mm -hmm. for. And we estimate anywhere, that's anywhere from about 35 to 40 pounds per tree. If you're doing, uh, if you're managing for the crop, um, rather than managing it passively. There's a lot of chestnut orchards that are grown without fertilization, without culti- mm-hmm. cultivation, or sort of managing for nutrients, sap analysis, soil testing. And yeah. so um, you might get reductions in yield if you're not um, get, playing to the needs of it as a crop more so than managing it passively as a tree. Gotcha. Okay. All right.
0: Um, so why was this particular farm with you know 1,850 acres? What What was the thought or the interest behind moving completely to an agroforestry program
1: oh that's a fantastic question it is um it is a, a pretty amazing transition that happened in a very short period of time yeah um so that farmer his name is kevin hill um we met kevin through a partnership that we were working with with a large agribusiness that was looking at their supply chain for carbon-based projects um they reached out regionally to farmers um, to see if they were interested in planting trees on farms more broadly. We didn't actually have like a chestnut specific focus at the time. Um, And then we went, actually, our team went and visited 10 farms in the region Mm -hmm. and looked at all those farms met all those farmers and understood sort of their needs, their wants, desires, did an analysis much like what we had been doing for a long time. And Stephen, who had been farming about uh, 4,000 acres in that region at its peak, at his peak, um, was looking to find ways to make that ground more sustainable for the long term. He had really amazing relationships with his landlords. He has some ground that he also owns in that region. But his main farming operation is actually in Orient, Ohio. So his home, he actually goes down to Maysville, farms that ground, and then moves north into Orient as the year goes on or vice versa, depending on opportunistic weather.
0: How big of a range is that? How many miles is he traveling?
1: So he farms his own ground in Orient. Um, It's about a two-hour drive from Orient. It's near Columbus. um, Okay. From Orient down to uh, Maysville. But he actually drives his tractors. So it actually takes four and a half hours by tractor, and he'll drive his tractors from Orient down to Maysville, and then basically live in Maysville until they're done with the work, and then move back. Um, and that's a bit of the main reason he did that. Uh, and, and he can probably speak to this better than myself. But yeah. The, the arbitrage between prices in Kentucky versus the inflation that was happening uh, in Ohio.
0: Yes. Yeah. 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 There's very different thoughts. Yeah. Gotcha.
1: Okay. Gotcha. Exactly. So he was willing
0: to open it up with that. What were some kind of the first things that you did to the ground? Obviously, it probably come off corner beans. Did you do any plowing, or did you just no-till in the the hay and they're starting that ripping?
1: Yeah, so we have really uh, three tiers of development. We have like a gold, a uh, silver, and a bronze. Um, The gold is really an 18-month prep cycle where we do full site uh, renovation. Mm -hmm. We do um, deep ripping and then conditioning and then cover cropping rotations into a permanent grass cover mix, hay mix that we talked about. Then you put the trees in the ground. The bronze is really just go straight in and do those renovations ex- after that happens, mm-hmm. where you're putting the trees in the ground, but then you're actually renovating around those trees, which is um, it's actually less costly, but it's l- less optimal in terms of the growth Correct. and the outcomes you want from the trees. So yeah. we do, depending on the, the, the project, the timeline, the capital available to do so. We'll, we'll run each of those protocols. Um, mm-hmm. In gotcha. hay ground, it's a little bit different. We just prep the, the tree row because we already have a good hay stand yeah. on that ground. Yeah. Turning yeah. it over to put it back into hay makes no sense. Correct. So we just, yeah. we just do that within the row.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now with the chestnuts, why haven't chestnuts started scaling for growers
1: in the last five years? Well, they've they started scaling the last five years particularly. Um, yeah. But prior to that point, there really wasn't a uh, confirmed high quality source of seed stock for mm, seedling okay. seedlings from parentage that had good track records of production. That has really just started to ramp up in the last five to eight years as um, the growers who have been doing it for 40 to 50 years and breeding it have really brought that seed stock to life. And I think between that and the, the just the amount of options for broadacre agriculture in the east of the United States. Yeah. There's somewhat limited options beyond the small scale for doing, for really scaling up, um, grazing, hay, corn, soy, small grains in, in some pockets, um, for larger acreage. The only other comparative to that really is pe- pecans. The chestnuts really fill a need from a, from the farm level perspective for a crop that actually is possible at a large scale. Um, to replace some of this acreage that's in corn or soy or hay or wheat. So it's a good marriage in that regard in terms of timing as farms are looking to transition, Mm -hmm. farmers are aging, things, you know, you know, the whole story there. So. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's very cool. Unlock the potential of elderberry farming with growing farmers elderberries thriving even on marginal land offer a lucrative opportunity for profiting off your property not just the berries but also sticks flowers and leaves are in demand diversifying income streams with low initial investments the path to a profitable elderberry business is within reach this resilient crop can be your gateway to tapping into a growing market for health conscious consumers start your elderberry venture today and cultivate success for more details visit growelderberry.com that's growelderberry.com. All right. So there's two big other things I wanted to get to. Um, you guys did announce a partnership with Rodale. Talk to us a little bit about what that looks like and what's that's going to help with.
1: Yeah, totally. We're really excited about what we're doing with Rodale. Rodale has been an awesome partner for us to really work with um, over the last year. But it's, it's something that we work toward uh, coming into this year and something that we're going to be really developing over the years to come. Um, the primary partnership with Rodale is they're working with a lot of the work that we do is on organic chestnuts, organic production mm-hmm. systems. Um, we aren't organic production experts ourselves. So working with Rodale to be able to help bridge gaps on organic practices in some of these agro unique sort of agroforestry systems is a huge benefit to us and to our customers um, moving forward. And then secondarily, Rodale isn't a agroforestry specialist. Mm-hmm. So we pass a lot of the knowledge and uh, and um, research that we've done onto Rodale so that way they can provide that information into the public domain, but also provide that information to the folks that they service and and, um, that they uh, work with. So Mm -hmm. it's a nice marriage between those two worlds. Um, As part of that partnership, it comes also with solving some of the fundamental constraints around tree supply and genetics Mm and things of that nature Mm -hmm. um, that we've been working on for a long time that Rodale um, has been an awesome partner on. And we're identifying sites In on the Rodell campus and otherwise to actually establish some of those um, genetics for showcasing uh, the benefits of those crops. Gotcha, gotcha.
0: Um, Let's talk about this because obviously, you know, there's a difference between a crop first versus a practices first mindset. And I know that you guys are really focused on the regenerative side of things. So, talk us through that little bit of a difference there because, you know, some people may say, oh, these look awesome, but they still may go about it the wrong way
1: yeah i mean it's a huge conversation i think oftentimes we have to code switch a lot between the two so someone might be interested in a practice which is alley cropping or a practice which is silvopasture or a practice which is windbreaks um but they might not know what crop makes sense for them to add to that so they they might want to do diverse hardwood silvopasture Mm -hmm. or they might want to actually produce something that's going to get them a crop in the near term um be it uh uh you know, planting a, a, a fruiting shrub or mm-hmm. be it planting a fruiting sh- tree or a tree nut or a timber crop. Um, and then looking at it from a, from a crop per- first perspective, it's, it's really more rooted in uh, the commercialization of agriculture, which is um, what are the crops that are gonna actually drive my return mm-hmm. on investment for this project? Um, and depending on the farm, depending on the interest, they come at it from each of those perspectives. At this at the scale that we're operating at in Kentucky, it's without the crop first approach, we wouldn't even have had a conversation to start with. But there's oftentimes farms that we work with that are only interested in the co-benefits on the practices side. And that's real also really important because things like if you're a grazer, you can get benefits from shade, increase your weight gain in the summer months. But, and, but you don't really care about uh, harvesting it for timber, harvesting it for a nut crop. You really care more about adding value um, to your existing uh, production system. Um, so that's sort of the difference in mindset. Yeah. Um, we run into this a lot because in agroforestry, you, you have to have both. You have to be able to address both of those mindsets um, because every farm is going to look at it a little bit differently. And for some farms, uh, it might make sense to just do chestnut orcharding rather than to do chestnut integrated with hay or chestnut mm-hmm. integrated with livestock or chickens or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, and that's okay and we can speak to that. So
0: what year typically is okay to start running animals back under if you're setting up a silver pasture? Um, like, I mean, sheep can probably go earlier than cows, which, and goats are probably somewhere in the middle.
1: Yeah. Goats, goats are uh, almost, almost uh, mutually exclusive from <laughs> tree planting initiatives uh, in our experience to some degree, but um, sheep definitely earlier. We have projects that have grazed sheep in year one post tree planting. Um, Cattle, there's two risks with cattle primarily. The first is um, browse, Mm -hmm. which is actually less of a risk, um, than rub. So rub is the biggest risk because you end up with um, stripped bark. And if you're trying to get a tree to get to maturity, um, you end up really stunting that tree's growth and it no longer really gets to the point in which it's providing that service. So um, certain trees grow faster than others as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So depending on the speed of the growth of the tree, um, it really changes that duration. Usually, usually, it's anywhere with cattle from year four to year seven, year eight, um, and that's with good management practices. So you, you, there's a somewhat of a prerequisite with silvopasture, which is you have to be doing rotational grazing, because you can't do the you can't set stock uh, a silvopasture. You have to put them in and bring them out based upon the observation of the impact that they're having. Um, mm-hmm. so there's, they, they do come, they do go together uh, in a lot of ways. Um, there are technologies like the Arbor shield or putting a piece of barbed wire around a tree tube that can help integrate livestock earlier into mm-hmm. that process as well. Um, and we've seen those practices work. Um,
0: yeah, gotcha. Um, let's talk a little bit about black locusts. You guys, I think recently had a, um, kind of a relationship with some Hungarian genetics. Talk us a little bit about kind of like the black locust tree and uh, what that's gonna do for kind of like the black locust in the US.
1: Yeah, it's a, black locust is my favorite tree right now. Okay. Um, not because it's, not not for any reason, mostly because I come from a timber side in yeah. the world. So yeah. it, it definitely aligns with my, my family's heritage. But the um, black locust in the United States is re- relatively underdeveloped um, over, over the last, you know, hundred years in terms of genetic stock. Um, it is native to the United States. Um, it grows naturally in the Appalachian range. Um, there's a lot of conversation around it being invasive in certain uh, ecotypes, but that there's a lot. It's one of the few trees that, um, because of its the way in which it propagates mm-hmm. from um, root shoots, um, it has a unique capability of doing early successional reforestation. Ah, okay. Um, and so in certain, you know, very sensitive ecosystems, introducing it doesn't make sense, but generally speaking, what we've seen in terms of habit is largely naturalized throughout the Appalachian range all the way through to really the um, you know nine, 95th parallel in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and so black locust in the United States um, is largely a niche industry today. Um, there's a lot of mills up and down the United States where there's concentrations of naturally grow- growing stands mm-hmm. um, the retention rate on those that wood is very low, however, because the trees, when you observe them grow in their growth pattern, will grow very crooked. Um, they'll have a lot of tension wood mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. the tree itself as a result. And so the, re- the, the retention of good quality saw logs and the ability for that to be sellable is relatively low when you're doing that harvest. And even still, there are mills that are making fairly solid money being able to retain, you know, Thirty percent of the log, or forty percent of the log, even after that, mm. and that's because black locust is um, one of is the most one of the most durable tree species, if not the most durable spe- tree species for rot resistance that you can grow in the temperate zones of the U.S. Um, it's prized for fence posts. It's prized for things like um, hops, hop poles, mm-hmm. and organic agriculture, yes. um, things of that nature, um, and it also has it demands a premium for those things comparatively to say, buying PT pressure treated pine or things of that nature. Um, I mean, I could go on for, for a long time, Michael, so you might have to steer me on this yeah. one. Um, the, the thing that I will say is that a lot of post-World War I, Hungary's forests got were completely decimated. And so they needed trees to reforest their, their region and they chose black locust to do so. And a lot of the breeding work that has been done has been done in Hungary, mm-hmm. for straight, straight growth form, um, fast growth, um, and specific, really nuanced growing uh, traits of the tree, like things like um, canopy, root, um, shoot to um, trunk ratios, okay. things like flower, flower production, and a very large part of Hungary's economy is fueled by black locusts, both on the honey production side, which is a big part of black locust industry in Hungary specifically, sort of like the clover equivalent okay. uh, in yep. Hungary, mm-hmm. uh, clover honey. And then for the timber side, which is a huge industry there as well. Um, so that partnership has enabled us to bring back sort of the, the, the legacy of black locust domestically of the, with higher quality genetics mm-hmm. to be able to activate a commercial uh, industry here in the United States. It is particularly well suited for silvo pasture as well. That because it because it comes into pastures and because of its leaf structure, it lets a lot of light penetrate into the Correct. understory. Yeah, so you get a lot of grass growth underneath it when you're managing it for silvo pasture as well. Yeah,
0: and I would imagine too, the further south you go, it actually could actually help, especially in the summertime, with uh, grass yeah, growth. Yes, hundred
1: percent. Now, as you go north, you're looking for wind benefits in the winter if you're doing Correct. grazing. Correct.
0: Yeah. Um, now remind me, does black locust have pods or is that the honey locust?
1: That's the honey locust. Okay.
0: All right. So there's no pods on it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like black locust is incredibly hard to find. Um, we had, like, we were trying to find some here and, um, we ended up talking to the guy and say, well, Osage Orange will work too. But just the quality of the posts was just pitiful. Absolutely pitiful, very wow. poor quality, very, you know, not straight and just really challenging to work with. Um, so yeah, having an actual planted, you know, plantation as it were of those would be just so much more valuable um, for farmers because um, they do make great th- posts. And I think the big thing is, is right now we do a lot of pressure treated in the U.S. And if we could replace that with locusts, A, it's going to last twice or three times as long. Three, it's a much stronger wood and much heavier. Um, But yeah, it'd just be better all around.
1: Yeah, and it also offsets some of the imports of teak and ipe that's coming from the rainforest in South America and Africa. And, you know, that's, you know... There's aren't that we we shouldn't be pulling lumber in. We we are we're, we're a temperate forest here in the United States. There's no reason for us to be importing rot-resistant timber from Correct. another country if we don't have. Yeah. To, so.
0: Yeah. So are these uh, species uh, you know just good for planting in the hedgerow or they require, you know, more management typically than the regular black locust we find here?
1: Yeah. So I mean best practice is requires some management. You want to okay. you want yeah. in the early years in particular. You know, in any, with any crop, you're managing co- competition and things of that nature. They cultivate in the early years in Hungary for the first three years um, to really get it ahead of the, um, any sort of competition. Um, but uh, once again, it's, it's all a matter of what you're trying to get out of the system. If you're trying to get posts out of the system, lower maintenance isn't, isn't uh, a bad thing. Um, it will probably slow the tree growth down a little bit. Um, in terms of performance. But if you're not going for saw logs and you're going for posts and you're trying to plant sort of a hedgerow of them for a future post down the line, I, there's no reason why you wouldn't plant them and manage them in a little bit of a lower maintenance scheme. If you're going for saw logs and you're going for, you know, decking material, it's a totally different game mm-hmm. for sure.
0: Absolutely. Um, what's the typical life cycle from planting to posts if someone's managing for that?
1: Yeah. So planting for posts, you can really start to get posts... You know, depending on your establishment and depending on your soils and all, sort of all of the agronomic pieces aside, you're talking about anywhere from your year, seven years to ten years for your early, earliest earliest post harvest. Okay, and then you do harvest. Um, you can harvest earlier, but you want a little bit more heartwood. So it's that when the, when it, when you have the, the heartwood is what's beneficial for the soil contact side of it. So if you're harvesting to put it into the soil, yeah, you you do want to you know you know have at least maybe you know. Five to six inches in diameter on that post. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And then the um, and then really your your first timber harvest is sub is sub twenty years. The reason for that is you're actually harvesting them at eleven to twelve inches in diameter. You're not waiting for them to get to huge sawlogs. The reason for that primarily is because there is a pest in the United States. It's native here called the locust borer, mm-hmm. and that starts to really come in in the later stages. It's part of the natural succession of. Of locust growing up, uh, senescing, yes. dying, yes. and then the yes. reforestation happening behind it. Yeah. So it's a naturalized p- problem. If you want to get good sawlogs okay. out of it, you have to harvest it earlier in its life cycle. So, which means you're still getting a lot of board feet, but you're ma- you're managing it for a smaller diameter sawlog.
0: Yeah. What's your spacing on black locust?
1: Yeah. So ten to twelve foot in row. Okay. Um, and then you can do as wide as your other crop uh, is beneficial. We do recommend at least you know. 20 to 30 percent of the planting to be additional other species, okay. primarily to sort of mitigate some pest risk in the early years and to be part to like disrupt um, the the pest cycle. But t- t- 10 to 12 feet in row, and then we typically plant densities at around 20 feet between rows, primarily to open up the option for sovo pasture on those projects. But from a plant in Hungary, they do 12, 12 foot by 12 foot grids and plantation. Um, oh, wow. We don't, that's not Plantation is not something that we're that focused on specifically, and especially not in the monocultures here in the United States. Um, we wouldn't recommend doing monoculture, yeah. black locust plantings for the risk profile that it
0: yeah. presents. Is there a way you can do like the chestnuts and the locust together, or what other species do you recommend planting in with those?
1: That's a great question. So we, we in Kentucky, for example, we use locust as biodiversity, and in biodiversity rows to break up the chestnut blocks. Um, so you sort of think about, you might have a hundred acre block of chestnuts. You might have three, three breaks and yeah. we call fire breaks. And the reason for that, there's a bunch of chestnut related pests that root, that actually root graft, um, Interesting. so under the ground, oak, oak wilt will root graft. Yeah. Um, and so having that fire break allows for the oak wilt to not necessarily infect different blocks. If you have the right, if you, if you're incorporating That's the, the theory, at least. Uh, we haven't seen it necessarily work in practice yet, but yeah, that's where the, agri- the agroecology perspective.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so talk us through like the marketing side of this, like uh, people doing these long-term investments, do they typically have buyers lined up beforehand or you just know that the general market will be there? And um, is that something you guys kind of help with lining up?
1: Yeah, um, it's a great question. It's a huge part of what we do. Um, we definitely help line it up. A lot of these crops Generally, don't have buyers that can take on long-term commitments. Um, but in buyer engagement as early as as early in the project as possible, um, gets you to build confidence. Um, so that while you might not have things like an actual purchase order in year one for something that you're harvesting mm-hmm. in nine years, um, you can have letters of intent and things of that nature to drive that confidence. Um, the the other thing is you're, you 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 think about the what are the downside cases that you're trying to prevent against so in the downside is in locust is the posts market mm-hmm. um really and in that market it's fairly quick to sell locust posts and it's fairly liquid where the, the development needs to happen is more on the decking side and really the higher end of of, of that lumber market in the united states yeah. so the return profile and the same ones with chestnuts so the the, the benefit the 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 market that is very liquid and very sellable today is the export market actually because it's globally consumed um, and then you have to do work to build up the wholesale domestic market and, and do the education around the crop domestically so we do view that as our role um, and we engage buyers every, uh, as much as we can to to make that as certain as possible early on in the projects. Gotcha, gotcha, very cool. What else would you like to share before we go? Yeah, I am I, uh, I think one of the biggest questions that I have coming into this podcast really is, I know a, a big theme about this is growing mm-hmm. farmers and um, really helping farmers thrive. And at the core of what we're trying to accomplish is help make transitions yeah. possible um, to, to what farms want to become, but might not have the capital or the ability to get there and i so i'm somewhat curious from your experience transitioning into doing elderberries yeah. in particular um sort of why you took that leap and um sort of why 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 you chose a permanent crop like elderberry um to expand into and how i and some of the the risks that you you, you saw in that and how you solve those Yes. Yeah. i think you're, you yeah. add a lot here michael
0: that's a great question because not only we've we've kind of scaled beyond that, we do now do willows. We are just in the middle of planting a bunch of sea berry and like autumn olive and things like that. Um, I think the biggest thing is that we're looking at you know we can My background is annual vegetables, so obviously intensive. Um, you know, you plant radishes three weeks later, you get a crop, but also that means three weeks later you get a crop, and so that means that you now have to handle that. You have to sell that fresh. Um, the radishes, if you don't harvest it within five days, it's gone bad. So if you look at something like an elderberry, obviously that's more of a seasonality thing. Um, that, you know, if you, you have to harvest it when you need to harvest it. Nice thing about elderberries, there's multiple harvest periods. You can go for the flowers, you can go for the sticks, you can go for the leaves, you can go for the berries. Um, health and wellness is blowing up. We know that. So we're seeing a lot of people, you know, just explode on that space. So that's a huge driver for us. There is, um, that demand, um, so yeah, that's part of it there. Um, and then I think too is that it's a lot more of a laid back. So obviously there's seasons where you have to go harvest, but there's other aspects of you don't have anything to do. Yeah. Um, and I think that's you know, if you're looking at you know even more of these other trees too, like the black locust, you plant, you care for it, but you know you can go on vacation <laughs> for a week or two or three. Um, totally. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. So that's the thing is I think you know we we we, we these are all trade offs that you have to say like okay yeah I want high high dollar per acre and again annual veg can do up to you know three, four, five hundred thousand 500,000 dollars an acre per year if you are very intensive but that comes with massive amounts of management so really it comes back to what you have available and if you have you know a 200 acre farm why would you then focus all that on one acre of uh, for production And, you know, I guess my thing would be use all 200 acres, run into an agroforestry program or something like that. You know, you're grazing cattle or other animals underneath the trees. And it's a lot more of a um, simplified system, as it were, I think. So, um, yeah, I think that's the thing is like I think every farm's different, too. So you may have some people that just don't have the land or maybe it's too steep to do certain crops. So that's where, you know, the thing about agroforestry is you can, you can work with pretty significant slopes and still make it work. Yep. Um, Which is a huge advantage there. So um, yeah, I mean, I think we still do a fair amount of uh, annual veg on the farm, but you know, we just did pick up another seven acres of ground this uh-huh. year that we have a long-term lease on. And um it's probably not long enough to do locust on, but it's definitely long enough to do things like elderberry or you know sea berry and stuff like that. So, um, but on our home farm, we probably are looking on our. Or we have a, a eight hundred foot long, um, a railroad edge to our property, which on the railroad. So I mean, we know nothing's going to go there. We probably will go ahead and put a, um, a mixture of these long term perennial trees that will give us something. Nice. Um, Because, you know, the the railroad manages that all as just rock. And so we could still pick up, you know, um, they're not going to spray our our chestnuts if they're on our property, but dropping chestnuts on their property. So um, that's something we could very easily put along that that edge effect.
1: Amazing. On the the elderberry side, have you gone into value adding the elderberries yourself?
0: Yes. Yeah. So actually all the elderberries that produced by our farm, go into our elder firesider so we basically you know our value add for that is quite extensive um so and then like the leaves that will go into a um salve because they still those elder those other leaves have some significant um properties in them Um, Flowers, same thing. They're going to go into a value add, either a tea or, you know, actually that salve again, those flowers can go in the salves as well.
1: And the, so, one of my, one of yeah. my, uh, the reasons why I'm asking is um, with fruit, just generally, especially these small berries, so much of the value in the value chain is in the value add on the tail. Level. Correct. And, yeah. You, yeah. and from a scalability perspective, you can do a lot with a small amount of space on berries, you um, know, in, in a way that is, you um, Really, I think accessible to a lot of young far- and growing farmers um, that are managing veg today. Yeah. So it's a really nice entry point for vegetable farmers. I would I would think. Um,
0: yeah, the other big thing too is these. You know, you take your absolute best ground, and that's what you put in your vegetables. But then' I'm sh- most 90% of farms have all this other acreage which is either wet or too dry or you know something wrong with it. And a lot of times if you do uh, perennials and especially if you can mulch them, you can get away with you know, very little bit of, of irrigation on them or very poor soils. And so that's another huge aspect is okay, yeah, you may not be making a tremendous amount of money, but it's an extra 15, 20, thirty thousand dollars a year which goes a long way with paying the mortgage and all these other things. Yeah, so stacking these enterprises yeah, is key. Hundred percent. I mean, I mean, one of the things um, too, like I've seen some people I, it's so, something. So
1: so amazing to see uh, your journey as well. Oh, Michael, tr- sort of transform the the farm. I remember when you acquired yeah. it. Yeah, so. no, it absolutely, awesome thank you.
0: Um, let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up. What is your favorite uh, tool on the farm?
1: Oh man, my favorite tool. So I have a lot of oh, favorite. T- this is hard. So we because we. Um, because we plant so much acreage, we're putting in about 100,000 trees in the ground. Mm-hmm. Imagine, we have to mark all that acreage for where the trees are going mm. prior to putting those trees in the yeah. ground. So we have a bunch of different ways in which we do this. But the thing that I'm really excited about that we that our team built is we we have a single single row line thing that we call the gizmo. Which okay. Is, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a three shank key line plow. Yeah. And then it's behind it. It's a Bethco tiller and cedar yeah. packer wheel. And then it actually is. It has a spray paint um, trigger that spray paints the dot of where the tree grows. So that way, a tree planter can come behind it and actually put a tree in the ground.
0: Oh, very cool. It's, so the spray. It's like
1: yeah.
0: a. I'm assuming the spray paint runs off a. If it's got a packer wheel, does the spray paint run off a like chain to the packer wheel?
1: No, I mean we use We use the GIS tractor for that. So we use um, we use a Trimble system with land. with It gets triggered by landmark lines. Certain tractors you can use the ISO bus output. Okay. Yeah. Yep. yep, yep. Um, But it's 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 it runs off of just an electronic signal. Okay. Um, It basically hits a hits a a solenoid and then shoots a spray paint dot on the ground.
0: Perfect. Um, very cool so that's really nice because that gives you that you just you just drive to that all over the farm and it just literally lays it out for you as you go
1: exactly right and you and you get a nice seed bed with yeah. the, whatever your ground cover you want is there as well oh so. yeah
0: because that's that would make a really nice seed bed
1: yeah very cool
0: all right well Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on really appreciate your time today and uh, definitely looking forward to catching up in the future as you guys take on more projects
1: thanks Michael really appreciate it.
0: Oh, and uh,
1: give us your socials.
0: Where should people Virtual. find out more about you?
1: You can pro- find us at uh, PropagateAg.com, Propagate, ag, uh, dot com, um, propagate uh, on Instagram, PropagateAg on Instagram, uh, PropagateAg on Facebook, and PropagateAg on LinkedIn as well. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much again. Thanks, Michael.